Welcome to the Masterminds Podcast Channel, brought to you by DonorSearch, a leader in prospect research tools and analytics, and your host, one of America's top philanthropic experts and fundraising consultants, Jay Frost. Chris Putnam Walkerly is a global philanthropy advisor and president of Putnam Consulting Group. She is the author of the award-winning book, Confident Giving, Sage Advice for Funders, and the new book, Delusional Altruism. She's also a Forbes.com contributor on the topic of philanthropic giving. Chris, thanks so much for being willing to talk with us today. Absolutely, Jay. I'm so glad to be here. There's so much we could discuss about what's going on in the world right now. And I'd love to get your thoughts on that, but I do want to dive into a couple of things which probably underpin much of what you have been thinking about and talking about, at least in the world of uh, philanthropy. And they're covered in your book, Delusional Altruism, uh, which is a, a really interesting book. And, and when I dug into it, one thing that hits you right up front is your discussion about these three grant makers uh, in the initial part of the book. Mm-hmm. and the things they have in common. Um, I think you say they want to change the world uh, and they all know how to get out of their own way. And I was curious to know um, how you think that grant makers and other philanthropists are getting in their own way. Yes, great question. Um, <laughs> where do I begin? <laughs> There's so many ways. Um, you know, one of the ways that I do talk about in the book Delusional Altruism, which I really wrote because, you know, after 20 years of advising philanthropists of all kinds and sizes, I just recognized that, you know, in their, despite their genuine effort to want to do the right thing, create positive change, have an impact, change the world, they were really getting in their way and preventing themselves from having the impact that they were seeking. And I wanted and often not realizing it, often, you know, very un- unintentionally. And so I, w- I wrote the book in many ways to help them see how this happens and then what they can do differently. And, you know, one of the main ways I see this happening is through what I call a scarcity mindset, um, which is really this sort of misguided belief, and it's really a belief um, that the less you invest in something, like yourself as a philanthropist and in the nonprofits you're supporting, the more your money can go help to help the cause um, that you're trying to support. And, or just, you know, sort of less is more um, doing things on the cheap. Um, And so to me, this is a huge, really self-created problem that philanthropists have because of course, you know, the nonprofit sector is, extraordinarily important in society um, and very critical for creating the kind of social changes that we need. And the philanthropic sector is very important in terms of not just funding that, but lending expertise and uh, connections and other kinds of assets that funders have. Uh, But too often funders are holding those back, um, not investing in themselves, uh, as philanthropists and not investing in the nonprofits they're supporting. So why is that scarcity mindset so common? What, where is that originating? 
Well, uh, you know, I think it originates in a lot of places. I think part of it originates is out of fear. Um, you know, fear of failure, uh, fear that's masked as guilt. You know, a lot of funders, I think, believe philanthropists, you know, they have access to wealth and they feel somehow guilty about it. And um, so therefore, you know, they shouldn't invest in themselves because all the money needs to go help other people. And that might seem noble and worthy, but if you think about it, to have the greatest impact as a funder, you really need to be the best philanthropist, the best funder that you can be, right? And by investment in yourself, you know, I don't mean like the best private jet or yacht. I mean the best, you know, research, talent, information, taking the time to really invest in building trusting relationships with your nonprofit partners so that they actually will come to you when there's a genuine problem uh, that they, you know, don't know how to solve and need your help with. Uh, investing in having a clear strategy and aligning your team to implement that strategy investing in evaluation and sharing what you're learning, what's working well, what's not working well, generating innovations, all these things philanthropists need to be doing so that they can be as effective um, as they can be in tackling the issues that they need to be tackling. I think there's also this misguided belief that, you know, the less you spend on overhead of nonprofits, somehow that's a barometer of success. And that's just completely misguided. Again, you know, if you really, if you're investing in a nonprofit because they're engaging in anti-racist work or early childhood education or whatever the issue might be, don't you want them to have the have top talent, uh, strong infrastructure, great systems, you know, efficient operations, a clear strategy? evaluating their effectiveness and constantly course correcting and making improvements, excellent financial management, a great board, like all of these things, right, are really important for running a successful nonprofit and creating impact. But all of that costs money. Um, it's not money being whittled away. It's true investment uh, in, in real capacity. And um, this sort of misguided notion that you know, you shouldn't spend that 99 cents of every dollar or 95% of the donation should go to programs and, and this very limited amount to quote unquote overhead makes no sense. You know, businesses would not operate that way. They, you know, would invest in their own research and development and their talent, retention and acquisition, um, excellent technology, et cetera, et cetera. But that kind of um, abundance mindset in the business sector can, get totally tossed out the window uh, when it comes to philanthropy. You know, one of the things that's interesting about that, you started by talking in this little bit about fear and mm -hmm. this idea that emotionality is undergirding much of these decisions, which uh, fundraisers might see as, as drier decisions. So you submit your proposal, get an answer, you have to wait a certain amount of time. Actually, this, this idea that, that donors have this fear might be surprising mm -hmm. to a lot of fundraisers, but their fears are, are not uncommon to all of us. One, one thing that's surprising in your book, you talk about the fear of coming out in support of a cause. Right. And what is that about? How, how does that happen? <laughs> how dangerous is it to realizing a, a funder's goal for changing the world? Yeah, you know, I think, 
you know, certainly the world we're living in today is quite polarized and it doesn't take much to set off, you know, people's opinions on social media or wherever. And so, you know, um, sometimes donors can be fearful that they uh, are actually in support of causes that might be considered controversial like you know which to some people would be controversial to other people seem completely appropriate and uh a normal part of life like ending racism and institutionalized racism or lgbtq issues or you know whatever it might be mental health or substance abuse um the fear of um people you know who who they otherwise are friendly with in business with you know uh, in their part of their circles, disagreeing with their choice, and you know that that having some kind of negative uh, ramification for um, for them socially or uh, economically or from a business perspective uh, is certainly a fear. Um, and so I think you know there's a lot, and and oftentimes these seem like completely benign issues. I mean, you think about. Um, after the Notre Dame fires, the cathedral in Paris, um, several high wealth donors came out to uh, provide a, a, an incredible amount of funding to help the cathedral and rebuilding and responding to the fire. And many of them were heavily criticized. You know, why are you supporting this cathedral when you're not supporting other kinds of causes throughout France or throughout the world? And so, you know, there can be a damned if you do, damned if you don't uh, experience that funders have. And so oftentimes um, the response is not to give or to give anonymously or to give only to, you know, quote unquote safe causes like, you know, food banks and things like that, which of course are very important, but not nearly as controversial. And so I think, you know, it's important for fundraisers to know that there's a lot happening for the donors uh, beyond reviewing proposals and looking at budgets and things like that. There's uh, that go into considerations for what issues to support. And if anything, those those pressures have been increasing, haven't they? Because when we first talked, you and I talked, it was right at the I guess around the time that all this was beginning with the pandemic. Yes. Right now, as we're speaking. There are demonstrations of a fight for racial justice, and that's always been there. But now that's the biggest part of the conversation we're having at this point in time. And but there's been a conversation throughout the whole year about whether organized philanthropy needs to do more in different areas. Mm -hmm. I, and I'm I'm curious, you know, how is it that that donors can respond to all these? different forces that are arising all the time? And how can organizations that are seeking their support be as dynamic and as sensitive to the interests and also the fears of these donors so that they can actually have a real conversation and try and address the things they want to change in the world? Mm -hmm. Yes, there's a lot of things that uh, funders can do. Um, I mean, certainly, you know, I would say there is absolutely a need for all philanthropy to be involved in uh, increasing racial equity in um, anti-racist work, in um, looking at institutionalized racism, 
uh, and uh, and looking at the systems and policies that have you know been created over decades and hundreds of years to maintain that injustice and um, and look very carefully at um, what they can do to um, increase their equitable practices and increase their anti-racism work and to do that not just um, not just by funding it but by internalizing it and so really op how do you operationalize uh, being anti-racist as an organization as a foundation as individuals you know so it's not just about uh, tossing money at nonprofits to kind of do equity work for example but it's really about how do you turn that equity lens on yourself as a funder and have those hard conversations um, as yourself and really unpacking who you are. Uh, in the book, I, I write about uh, one of the fears is a fear of um, losing the person you thought you were. Hmm. And, you know, I think this happens to all of us where, you know, we, we fear, we have uh, idealized uh, uh, notions of who we are as people. And when they get questioned, it's scary. And we don't really want to lose that person we thought we were. Um, and we don't really want to recognize we aren't as, you know, ideal or good or strong or anti-racist or pro-LGBT, whatever it is, right? Feminist mm -hmm. uh, as we thought we were. And it can be hard. And too often funders see that, experience that fear, all of us really, nonprofit leaders too, uh, we see that fear, we begin to feel that fear and we retreat and hide uh, or develop kind of a wait and see approach. And I think what we need to do instead is really embrace that fear and explore it and unpack it and um, identify ways that we can learn and improve and you know take steps to change our behaviors, change our learning, change our understanding of ourselves and you know make a lot of improvements and so i th i think that's really important um and i i also think you know in efforts to create let's just say social change broadly or um uh address institutionalized racism it's hard to do that when you have a scarcity mindset when you as a funder you move too slowly when you feel feel fearful when you feel overwhelmed, when you don't have a strategy, you don't have clarity as to what you're trying to accomplish, much less a plan for getting there. And those are a lot of the ideas I talk about, um, the delusional beliefs that I talk about in philanthropy that are holding us back. They're holding us back um, regardless of the issues that we're trying to fund. Uh, and what I think funders really need to be doing instead is thinking about how, how do we transform? How do we change these systems so that they're not inequitable? Um, that racism is not, you know, part of our systems and institutions, uh, and you know that requires some pretty long-term, deep change, addressing root causes, looking at systems and policy changes, and absolutely building very trusting relationships with nonprofit partners. It's funny because you call the book delusional altruism, but actually half the book is is this other. There's a subtitle, transformational giving, which you're talking about now. And yeah, absolutely. If the, first, if the first part is kind of a diagnosis, then the second part is uh, it, it's reductive, but kind of an implementation. How do you 
take the inventory of questions you've asked and then actually implement the things that really represent who you truly are, the best version of yourself. And mm -hmm. that seems like it's a series of asking questions, which people on both sides of giving and receiving uh, do all the time, that kind of inventory. So I'm curious with, with you, what kinds of questions are key to both donors and charitable organizations to get them to that honest place where they're working on these issues? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, funny that you ask because there is an entire chapter devoted to questions. Um, and I actually identified 12 questions that I think all philanthropists should ask. And I would say all fundraisers and uh, nonprofit leaders should ask as well. Um, and a couple of them really stand out for me uh, right now. And one is why. Um, and I think you ask why for two reasons. You know, one is um, to really understand your purpose. Why do you as a philanthropist exist? Why do you as a nonprofit exist? What is your reason for being? And this is important because, you know, people align with uh, who you are and they need to know your purpose so that they can determine if your purpose aligns with their purpose and, you know, kind of be part of and join with you. But I think also, you know, we need clarity as people, as philanthropists, as nonprofit leaders in what we stand for and um, why we do what we do. And absent that clarity, it's very easy to get distracted uh, and chase squirrels. And I talk about, you know, many donors suffer from donor distraction disorder where mm -hmm. they, you know, kind of like whatever latest idea they just heard at a conference or maybe now it's a virtual conference or a webinar they kind of go off course and follow that lead. Um, but the other reason to ask why related to that is um, because there are a lot of needs and opportunities in the world and it's really important to, and, and things coming at us, it's important to ask why to question. You know, why is this something that I should support? Why should I, you know, whatever, get involved in a collective impact endeavor or participate in crowdfunding or, uh, you know, fund this particular issue. I remember serving on the board of directors of a foundation and the CEO said, I think we need to support this countywide trans public transportation initiative. Now, you know, public transportation is a, a good thing. You know, generally speaking, I'm all for it. But I asked why just to understand how does this issue address you know our strategy is it going to help us achieve our strat strategic goals or is it going to take us off course why this foundation like why this issue why now um you know not to be critical at all but just to in interrogate it a little bit and make sure we are making a smart choice with the limited resources that we have so i think that's one important question to ask um another interestingly is what do we already know and I think too often uh, in philanthropy, we waste a lot of money and time uh, chasing answers to things that we actually probably know most of the answer to. If only we just sat down with ourselves and uh, brainstormed, what do we already know about this issue or question? Um, one of the examples I give in the book is there was a foundation, a leader of a foundation association and she left that position to go run a community foundation and she uh, 
felt that they needed to engage in a planned giving campaign, uh, but she felt ill-equipped. She had never done quote-unquote planned giving before, and so she asked me if I could recommend a planned giving consultant. And I said, the last thing you should be doing right now is hiring a planned giving consultant. And she said, why? And no offense to all the planned giving consultants that are listening, just bear with me for a second. She said, why? And I said, because you actually know a lot more about planned giving than you realize. Uh, you, um, I mean, maybe you've never quote unquote done that work, but you, in your previous job at this association, you certainly did a lot of fund development work. You, you know, you were engaging members to join the organization, to contribute to initiatives. You were organizing lots of campaigns. Um, so you understand planning and goal setting and having timelines and kind of strategies and holding people accountable and managing all that. Uh, you understand communications and a lot of plan giving or any kind of fund development is communications related. And, um, and she was doing a lot of that work uh, in her previous roles. So together we brainstormed all the things that she knew that were very directly related to plan giving. And she found that astonishing. And I think we all really know probably 80% of what we need to know. If we literally just spent like an hour or two and that could be by yourself or with a team brainstorming um, what you're aware of. And only then can, can you think about, well, what's the 20% that we don't know or the 30%, whatever it is. And so there was a lot that she didn't know. And that's another question I think we then need to ask is what don't we know? Um, because, uh, you know, there was a lot that she didn't know. So, for example, she didn't really know how to have uh, – you know, somewhat difficult or awkward conversations with people about death and their legacy, right? That was something that she didn't know much about. She didn't know about how different cultures might approach plan giving differently and how she might need to change her messaging or her approach. And so once we talked about the things that she didn't know, which, you know, there were a lot of them, then she could figure out, okay, what's the kind of help I need? What's exactly the kind of plan giving consultant I need and what kind of skills do they need to have? What do they need to bring to this discussion to help me? Um, I don't need help with organizing a campaign or learning how to ask for money. I need some other kind of specific help. And so by just spending an hour together figuring that out, it saved her a tremendous amount of time and resources and not going down the wrong path um, in hiring the wrong person. It's interesting that even there, it sounds like people are looking for validation. The things they know, they, they go through an inventory, but they're also looking for a sense that the conclusions they've drawn or from their experience are the right ones. And I, maybe part of this is that there's no school for philanthropists. Is there? Maybe there is. But, <laughs> but I'm wondering, in fact, you, you talk about in the book how uh, a philanthropist is anyone who donates time, money, experience, skills, and or talent. Yes. Um, and but I, I bet most people uh, might describe themselves that way, even though they wouldn't necessarily describe themselves as philanthropists, or at least we'd like to think of ourselves that way. Right. So is is everyone really a philanthropist by that definition? Um, is there something which undercuts those actions or attitudes? You know, something that's that really distinguishes people who commit themselves to this from those who are just dabbling? Well, I think, you know, I think the term philanthropist is, you know, one of those like highfalutin kind of terms. I think it's something we 
bestow upon the wealthiest among us, the billionaires, and um, and you know, in some kind of idealized belief uh, that they are doing the most good, and they must be smarter, you know, because they're so wealthy. We often kind of equate intelligence, wealth with intelligence, which you know is not true um, necessarily. And so I do think it's important for everyone to recognize, um, you know, that, you know, philanthropy is really about solving social problems and a willingness to help others and, you know, kind of serving humanity. And I do think it's also important to recognize that philanthropy is a lot more than wealth. Um, and I think especially for nonprofit leaders and um, fund developers to recognize that, um, to, to really see themselves as peers of their funders and true partners, and to recognize that as nonprofit leaders and nonprofit organizations, like you're the ones helping their funder achieve the funder's mission, right? The funder is funding. They're generally not the ones um, providing substance abuse treatment or building low-income housing or you know, offering arts education, right? They're funding the organizations that are doing that. So without you, the nonprofit, philanthropy can't meet its mission. You play a really critical role. And, uh, and to really view yourself as a peer and a partner is important. I think it's an important mindset. I think it's an important abundance mindset for nonprofit leaders to orient themselves that way as they're approaching their donors. Um, as well as to recognize that your donors bring a heck of a lot more than money to the equation. I mean, money is important, definitely, but you know they also bring other kinds of assets, which could be their knowledge, experience, expertise, their connections. I mean, think about you know nonprofits that were scrambling to apply for the PPP loans and the federal. Um, EIDL loans uh, during the COVID pandemic, you know, if you didn't have a strong relationship with a banker, which many people and organizations don't, it was kind of a free-for-all. You know, you, you're scrambling, you're applying, you're uh, applying to multiple banks, you know, in hopes that somebody's paying attention to you. Well, it's the, it's the organizations that had strong personal banking relationships, like they knew the banker, uh, that were... Um, getting the money the fastest. And in many cases, uh, they had like early entree, earlier entree than was publicly known uh, to be able to get some of that funding. And so think about the value of your donor introducing you to their banker and being able to say, you know, you know, here's an introduction and you need to help this nonprofit. They really need this PPP loan. Like that's invaluable. That could have made the difference between and getting that money faster and not laying people off. And so I think, you know, just recognizing, you know, funders know each other and you can talk to them about maybe we're not the right fit for you, but who else could you introduce us to in the community? Um, and, and, and they're often super knowledgeable because they're passionate about the issue and cause and bring kind of a bird's eye perspective, maybe a national perspective to whatever issue it is that you're working on because they attend conferences, they network with other funders. That are working on this issue and often have a wealth of knowledge uh, that would be they'd be happy to share if you as the nonprofit are really willing to have a more open conversation um, 
and, you know, for both parties really to be willing to develop trusting relationships. Do you think that door is open, that funders would be willing to receive a note or a phone call to have that kind of conversation? Not just about, will you give me money, but what is the advice that you can give me as I'm trying to transform my community? I think so. I mean, not everybody for sure, but, you know, why not ask? Look, you're not going to walk out the door any poorer than you walked into it by by asking, you know, yes, we'd like some funding, but more importantly, you know, we're at a crossroads and we'd like some advice or we want to scale and we'd love your thoughts on what's your experience with nonprofit scaling, um, what works, what doesn't work, what are the mistakes to avoid, because we know that you've done this with other nonprofits. Would you be willing to talk with us? I mean, honestly, what's the worst the worst thing they could say is no, you know, we're too busy. We don't do that. Who knows? Um, but I think most would be delighted to have that conversation with you. Hmm. Even the ones, quite frankly, that have like notifications on their websites that say, you know, we don't, ex we don't um, fund not unsolicited proposals. Right. Right. <laughs> Which I hate, you know, it's like, come on. Uh, it's like a no soliciting sign on a door. Yes. Yeah, and, but you know what? They're, they're getting their ideas from somewhere. You know what I mean? Like, it's just really not accurate. It's not true because they are going well, to conferences. They are interacting with others. They're learning about different programs and initiatives. Like, the organizations they're finding to support didn't just, like, poof, like, show up one day, like, in their office, right? So, you know, I think you just kind of have to find other ways to reach those kinds of funders. Um, so that you are one of the ones that they want to invite. Well, and just as you said, if uh, if organizations that were more likely to receive funding through that emergency uh, assistance during the pandemic were likely to receive it with a trusted relationship with a banker than having a trusted relationship between a funder and a and a potential grantee yeah. makes that that much easier. But I have to ask you, do you believe that funders Think that perhaps the door is closed to those conversations sometimes among nonprofits. Are they uh, resistant to conversations with people who might want to fund projects? Are they concerned about control issues? Uh, is the funder concerned about control issues or the nonprofit? Oh, I couldn't the quite. Sure. I mean, you know, there's a lot of fear among nonprofits, and, you know, rightly so. Um, you know, the fear of, of, expose, of exposing that things aren't going so well, um, mm -hmm. that your CEO is thinking of leaving and there's no succession plan, that your the CEO's relationship with their board chair is, you know, bordering on abusive, um, that you're, you just lost some major funding and you're not quite sure you can, you know, you'll be around a year from now, whatever it might be. Um, uh, there's you know, there's always fear of exposing what's not working well and this belief that we have to present our best selves. Um, but the react, you know, and when I say, you know, this fear exists and, you know, in many cases it's understandable is because, you know, too often nonprofits have been burned by funders who have, you know, abandoned them in their most dire moments. So I can understand where that fear comes from, but I think ultimately 
the nonprofits that will be the most successful, and quite frankly, the foundations and funders that will be the most successful are, are the ones that are willing to have open and honest conversations uh, with each other about what's working, what's not working, and what kind of help they truly need. Um, in the book, I write about you know an arts organization that was hobbling along with like four different Excel spreadsheets, you know, managing mm -hmm. uh, ticket sales. It was a theater, you know, ticket sales and um, uh, donations and uh, attendance and all these different things. And were really afraid to ask their funder for technology support so that they could create and build a more a single, more robust, comprehensive database that would allow them to operate a lot more efficiently and ultimately raise more money because they didn't trust any of their funders. They didn't trust that if they shared what was really happening behind the scenes, um, they didn't trust that the funders wouldn't leave. And, you know, so the downside is, you know, you have an important theater that's like hobbling along and not able to operate as efficiently and effectively and not, not able to achieve uh, their goals and funders that really aren't able to contribute in ways that might be very meaningful to them. As you describe all this, I'm imagining you must also be, you must almost be in a position of a marriage counselor or a therapist <laughs> working with these, uh, these donor organizations, but also maybe in the nonprofits you work with, uh, because it, it Perhaps they don't even have a common language for expressing these innate fears and concerns and uh, and lack of validations that are the only true stumbling blocks to true partnership and activating change. Mm -hmm. How did you find yourself in that role of the minister counselor? <laughs> um, that's funny. I have a, I have a client who regularly refers me refers to me as her therapist. Um, mm -hmm. You know. I, in consulting and in advising, it's also about trusting relationships. And so that's, you know, I couldn't help my clients if they didn't trust me. And so I think, um, you know, uh, in many cases, if you're the leader of a nonprofit or you're the leader of a foundation or you're a corporate giving program or you're the donor, you know, there's not a lot of people that you can talk to. Um, you know, you don't necessarily want to share your concerns with your board or your staff or, you know, other people who might be thinking to themselves, well, you know, geez, that's not really a problem. You have all this money, like, give me a break. Um, and so it is important to be able to, um, as a consultant and an advisor, really listen to my clients, let that be a sounding board, uh, let them share their where they're most vulnerable, their fears, their concerns, uh, so that they have an outlet for discussing these things. I mean, I, I remember calling a client, you know, right after we all went into lockdown, I reached out to all of my clients on by phone to say, hey, I'm thinking about you. I hope you're okay. How are you doing? And, you know, one woman was on the verge of tears because she, uh, her partner was, um, ill and had just been diagnosed with a serious medical issue like the week before they went into lockdown and but now they could no longer actually were allowed to go back to the hospital to get follow-up tests so she was very worried about her you know her partner and scared and then in a position of having to lead her staff into this virtual world that was unknown to them 
Uh, they were not a funder that was investing in their own technology, and so they had no ability to um, make emergency grants remotely. They had to physically go to the, get their checks, which were now locked up, and they weren't allowed, you know, they would have gotten fined if they had gone uh, to their office. So she was under a lot of stress and really had no one to talk to. And so, you know, um, in those moments, yeah, you are a bit of a social worker or therapist or, you know, if nothing else, a very good listener to be there for somebody else. That kind of experience and tool set must put you in good stead, even discussing these issues with family. What has it been like recently for you as you try to talk about the range of issues going on in society, especially that are happening in these weeks, um, and how maybe the kind of work you do addresses them when you talk to your family and your kids? Yeah, so um, I have, between my husband and I, we have five children. Um, three, the oldest three are my stepkids, and they're all in their 20s. Um, and I, we have t uh, 10 year old twins, a boy and a girl. So uh, it's been it's been very interesting. You know, as a parent, I think you're always trying to balance educating your children about what's going on in the world and protecting them. Um, and, uh, you know, and um, so with a lockdown with COVID, um, you know, helping them recognize, recognize and do what they need to do to, to stay safe and not fear that they're about to die. <laughs> so I remember, you know, taking my kids on a bike ride and um, which we're lucky to be able to do. And, you know, my daughter being very fearful that she was, you know, we were gonna come into contact with people and somehow we'd all die. And, you know, you have to explain in ways that a 10 year old can understand that that's not gonna happen. Um, and we will stay safe and we'll, you know, here's what we're gonna do to stay away, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, you know, most recently with um, the police brutality and uh, police racism and death of George Floyd, uh, I was wondering how to explain this to my children um, in ways that they could understand and learned, you know, they already knew about it. Much to my, you know, horror, they had learned about it on, you know, some social media that I wasn't aware that they were following and through their friends. And so, on one hand, they knew a, a lot that was accurate, and on the other, they had a lot of inaccuracies. And so, you know, my response was really to just like literally pull the car over because uh, this was happening uh, while we were on a, on a drive and just have very honest conversations with them, try to understand what they had learned, what their sources of information were, so I could know how to monitor them and, you know, be very honest about what was going on and what this means and why it's important and the kinds of things that we need to do as people, as, as kids, as a family. Um, and, uh, and, you know, quite frankly, made a mental note to myself that, you know, I want to be the person that they hear from first and uh, that in the age that we live in where, um, you know, my, my son was talking to his friends while I think playing Minecraft, you know, remotely, but they can talk to each other. Um, that I need to recognize that that information flow happens very quickly, and I want to make sure that I can guide them through that as a parent. Yeah. You know, um, thinking about your book and your writing, and including something I know you just wrote about, which is um, the uh, Sick Mistakes Funders Making a Crisis, um, I'm sure you're thinking a lot about all these issues you've been talking about over the last 45 minutes or so. and 
I'm wondering if as you look forward, especially through the lens of what's happening right now, where there's so much, you know, uh, uh, conflict, um, especially in the United States, if you see a particular role that philanthropy can play to tackle things that it hasn't adequately addressed or maybe touched at all. Yeah, um, a couple thoughts. Um, and for those of you that might be interested listening, um, the article that Jay just mentioned is called Six Mistakes Philanthropists Make in a Crisis and, and What They Can Do Differently or What, what They Can Do Instead. Um, and it's actually freely available to download off my website if you just go to sixmistakes.com. Uh, you'll get a landing page and you can download it there. And I think it would be of interest, not just to funders, but to uh, nonprofit leaders uh, and fundraising folks to understand the kinds of mistakes that funders typically make in a crisis, regardless of what kind of crisis it is, if it's a flood or a pandemic or whatever's happening. And so um, two of those mistakes are uh, related and it's like stepping back and taking a wait and see approach. And I think especially now, that's the last thing that funders need to be doing. Um, you know, stepping instead of stepping back, you really need to engage and, you know, contact, uh, engage yourself, engage your employees, um, contact your grantees, ask how they're doing and what kind of help they need and how you can be of service. And instead of kind of waiting and seeing how this all pans out, I mean, if you if you take a wait and see approach to institutionalized racism, you're going to be waiting and seeing for a long time, right? And so I think it's really important for funders to um, take this opportunity, regardless of who you are and kind of where you're at, uh, to reflect, uh, to learn. It is a, a lot of information that's been made available uh, in the past just a week alone um, uh, that I think funders can easily avail themselves of and you know, be willing to have some hard conversations and uh, look at yourselves and figure out what are the changes we want to see in the world, but what are the changes we need to make in ourselves in order to 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 realize that kind of change, um, because the you know I think the big thrust of the book, delusional altruism, is that how we give matters, and we need to transform ourselves as funders in order to have the kind of transformational impact we want to see in the world. Um, and but I do also really think that a, a lot of the um, uh, the ways that we need to fund include things like being flexible, being agile, adapting. Uh, intentionally learning so that we're constantly um, adjusting our strategy, uh, incorporating the voices and perspectives of the people we're trying to help. Um, so there's kind of a, you know, a speed and agility. Uh, I, I talk a lot about sentient strategy, that strategy really needs to be living and breathing, uh, organic and, you know, our best thinking at the time, and as conditions change, strategy can change, right? Uh, I think that's really important, but also the kinds of ways that we fund, I think, include giving up control, you know, really ceding control to the nonprofit leaders, uh, particularly leaders of color, um, and understanding uh, 
how that we can, um, and the people that we're trying to help, community members, so that we really think about how does our funding, how is our funding not only informed by the people we're trying to help, but how do we begin to give up some control and decision making in terms of the issues we're supporting, the nonprofits we're choosing to fund, uh, governance, et cetera. Uh, and what are really those root causes? How do we put on our, our systems change goggles and our policy advocacy goggles and our root cause goggles so that we see what's happening uh, more clearly and can begin to address um, those issues in ways that are meaningful and transformational and lasting. Thank you very much, Chris. Really, really appreciate your, your insights. The Masterminds podcast is underwritten by DonorSearch, the world leader in donor intelligence solutions for not-for-profit organizations. Our producer is Terrence Diggs. Our theme music is composed and performed by Ahmad Ibrahim. The voice introduction to our program is performed by Ryan Ibrahim. You can subscribe to the Mastermind series on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find blogs, livecasts, and flash classes with our featured masterminds at donorsearch.net or check the show notes and descriptions.